The rest of you, if you grab your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 13 with me, that would be great. If you're using one of our pew Bibles, our text today is on page 826. You'll find it right there in the seat underneath you. We've been doing a series this summer entitled The Greatest Stories Ever Told. And we've been focusing on parables of Jesus. And I've been somewhat intentional in trying to select out, if you will, parables that often get overlooked. You know, we have some that are very prominent parables that everybody knows, and the prodigal son is one of those, and we spent six weeks earlier this year studying it. But this particular parable that we're going to look at today is is fairly well known, but in some ways we don't spend a lot of time focused on it. And before I read the parable for you, the parable of the buried treasure and of the priceless pearl. Let me try to put this a little bit in context for us so we begin to kind of pull out a little bit. This, this text, verses 44 through 46 in Matthew chapter 13, is found in a chapter in the Gospel of Matthew that is actually just full of parables. Jesus tells seven parables in the framework of this one chapter. Matthew has put them all together for a purpose, for a reason. Reason. Now they kind of run the gamut a little bit. One of them we know well, the parable of the sower. That dominates the early parts of the chapter. It comes with an explanation. It also creates a question among the disciples as to why Jesus has now begun to teach almost exclusively in parables. And in the same way that he's moved, been kind of forced to move out of the synagogues into the open air teaching, he now also is not teaching directly, but he's telling most of his kingdom truth through parables so that those who, who see it through the eyes of Jesus get the truth, but for the rest it's going to be a fulfillment of prophecy where they see but they do not see. They hear but they do not understand. He also tells the parable of the tares and the wheat. This is not one that we, we, we process a lot. He talks about these workers who come into the owner of the field and say, boy, we've just been out, we've been inspecting that which we planted, and not only has wheat grown up, but a lot of tares have grown up, a lot of weeds, and, and did you not buy good seed? And the owner says, yes, indeed, I did buy good seed, but my enemy has done this. My enemy is trying to make me go bankrupt by planting weeds along with the good wheat in my field and trying to choke that all out. And they said, well, what, you want us to go in and pull all the weeds out? And he said, no, leave it to the end. And after the harvest, we'll separate the wheat from the tear. And it's a picture of separating those who are righteous in the eyes of God and those who are not righteous in the eyes of God at the moment of judgment. Very much the same kind of emphasis comes out in the story of the dragnet, which is at the end of the chapter. Jesus talks about a fisherman who goes out and he's pulling his net behind his boat. When he finally pulls in the, the the the, uh, the hall and they pull it up on the shore and they spread out the net. Some of the fish are good fish and they keep those, but others are junk fish, fish that have no value and they toss those off in another direction. And it says in the same way, at the end times, there's going to be a separation between those who have who are who are acceptable in the eyes of God and those who are not. Mixed in with that is the story of the mustard seed and the story of the leaven talking about the fact that even though the kingdom may seem awful small, in particular in the days of Jesus, it may seem like it's powerless. It has the ability to grow and expand and to change everything. As the tiniest 
seed. You know, I have some mustard seeds from Israel back in my office that we, we happened to be out when we were there and, and buy a mustard seed. And I found one. And, 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 and an actual seed is about the size of a speck of pepper. So think about taking your, your pepper shaker and just shaking it out on your plate and take one little speck, and that's about the size of the seed. Yet when it grows, it becomes large enough that birds can actually build nests in it. It becomes like a tree. It, like a little leaven goes into, the, into all of, the, of the, um, the dough and it permeates everything even though it's just a little bit of it. And that's the, the power of the kingdom. And it's in the midst of that in terms of there, we have the choice to be good soil or unresponsive soil. We have the opportunity to be wheat we have the opportunity to be the weeds. We have the opportunity to be the, the good fish, the valuable fish, or the fish that get thrown away. And what's presented before us is a kingdom to choose that has the power to change everything, both here and forever. And it's in the midst of that context that Jesus teaches these parables. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure buried in a field. That a man found and reburied, then in his joy, he goes and he sells everything he has and he buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. When he found one priceless pearl, he went and he sold everything he had and he bought it. Now these are very powerful images for those who were living in the first century. You know, I mean, w- here we are in the 21st century. I mean, literally millennia removed from this experience. And we think, who in the world buries treasure in a field? You know, who, who gathers up their money and buries it in a field? Everybody knows you put it underneath your mattress, right? That's where you keep it. You know, um, it, it, this was a very different world. They had banks in this day, but the banks weren't like places of... Where you, where you left your funds in a secure place. You, you gave money to a bank so they could turn around and lend it to other people and kind of manage all of that for you. But they weren't places where you could go and just put your money in and know it was safe and secure and protected by the federal government. It just didn't work that way. And if you remember, Palestine is, is kind of like the roadway between everything. You know, if you th- think about the geography. If you've got the Mediterranean Sea, you know, and over here you've got Il- Israel... Off to the south, you got Egypt. Egypt was off and on a world power. To the north, you had the Assyrian kingdom. Off to the east, you had the Babylonian empire that emerged. Then you had the, then you had the Macedonians under Alexander the Great. And then the Romans, right? And so here you had this little bridge between these world powers. And Palestine, Israel in particular, was always getting trampled on. So just imagine... An army walks, comes through your thing. They come through your village. They steal everything you got. Right? I mean, they, they just take everything. They're plunked down. They're waiting for the next battle. They just steal everything. So then you spend a decade trying to get everything back, you know, trying to recover from all of that. And the next thing you know, another army's marching through, and they take everything. So after a while, so how in the world am I going to protect my stuff? And what they started to do is they would literally just go out and bury things where only they knew where it was. And they didn't just bury coins. They buried clothes. They buried furniture. They buried other kinds of things just to protect them from other people. 
And not everybody owned land, so sometimes they were burying it on somebody else's property, right? So here you have this imagery of a guy who's, who's digging in the field. We're not told why he's digging in the field. Uh, who knows? Maybe he was, he was a laborer who was working for the owner of the field. Maybe he was you know, a tenant farmer, meaning that he had, he had released the rights to grow stuff on the field. We, we don't know, but he, some, for some reason or another, he's out digging the field. We get the impression he's preparing the harvest. He's getting ready, the soil ready for planting. And, he did, and, he, and he's digging, and he, and he hits something. And he starts digging it all out, and he finds this incredible treasure. And, and he immediately understands what the treasure is worth, and it's worth way more than he has. So he goes into town, he, he sells everything that he needs to so that he can go and buy the field, and then the treasure becomes his. Now, <laughs> sometimes we struggle with this imagery. Because doesn't the guy seem just a little bit dishonest? You know, you, know you, you would think, you know, maybe you could go back to the owner and say, hey, I found something. You paid me a finder's fee. I'll tell you where it is. You know, I mean, but that's not the way it worked in those days. There was a rabbinic law that said the fruit belongs to the finder. And the imagery was that, because, you know, they, they didn't have roadways everywhere, right? So they were constantly cutting through other people's property to get into town and back out and to travel around. So they would be walking through other people's orchards, other people's vineyards, you know, other people's fields. And if you were walking through and you found a fig or if you found a cluster of grapes that had fallen to the ground, if you picked it up, if you found it, it was yours. It was yours to take. It was yours to consume. It was yours. That's the way the law was written. So in this particular case, here you have a guy who finds this treasure, and by law, by the practice of the times, it was his already, but he goes the extra mile to go and sell everything that he has and buy the field so that he actually has the right to it. And who knows how long it's been there, right? I mean, it, it could have been that the owner planted it there. I don't think the owner would have sold the field if he knew his treasure was still in it, right? How, how many of you would do that? You take everything and then sell the field and it's gone. It could have been there for generations, right? So he buys the field. So he, he's, he's actually going the extra mile to do what is right, and he buys the field. The second story is about a merchant who's out searching for pearls. Now, the pearl was, was highly valued in the days of Jesus. We, we don't really hear much about pearls earlier on. In, in the Old Testament, there's some references to it, but by the days of Jesus, it had become really the, the most precious of commodities. It was valued because it really was made without the touch of a human hand. You know, most other things, gold, even diamonds, in order to get diamonds to really look the way we like them, man has to work with them, right? You have to, you have to cut them, you have to shine them and polish them, but a pearl, the more you work on it, the worse you make it look. Right? It, it's just the way it comes right out of the shell. And they became priceless to them. They, they valued them not only as an investment, but just because they had just, just incredible aesthetic beauty to them. Much like the way some people today will just spend millions to buy art to put up on their wall, just so it, it's an investment to them, but also it's just because they, they just love the art. They just valued it. And they would travel all kinds of places to get it. Some, some of the pearls came out of the Red Sea, which is down by Egypt. Still a good journey, but not all that far. Some of them came out of the Persian Gulf, which was a longer journey for them. But there were actually people from the area of Palestine that traveled all the way to Britain and even all the way to India to get the best of pearls. So here you have this pearl merchant, and he's out collecting pearls 
to sell back home. And so, you know, he, he, he's got a pouch full, you know, of, of good merchandise. But he comes across that one pearl that is, it's, it's a once-in-a-lifetime kind of pearl, right? And, it, and he takes his entire inventory and liquidates it in order to be able to buy this pearl because it's priceless. It's priceless. You know, and in the context of the bad soils and the good soils, in the context of the wheat and the tares, in the context of the fish you keep and the fish you throw away, Jesus presents this kingdom that it has the power to grow up and to change everything and it, it has a force that cannot be changed. And then he presents the moment of choice in the merchant and in the one who is digging in the field. Now, this is one of these rare moments as a pastor where I don't want to mess up the Bible by saying too much. <laughs> you know, because there's ways in which the story itself just has this incredible power to call us to certain decisions and responses. But let me, let me risk a few things in this moment, just for us to think about. You know, in, in the context of, of all that's going on in this chapter, and the fact that Jesus has been telling the disciples that those who are going to really see what God is doing do so through the lens of the eyes of Christ. They do so by seeing God's activity through the person of Christ. There's several things I think that are really helpful for us to pull out in the midst of all this. And one of that, I think we really need to understand what the kingdom of heaven is. That's its intended here. Now, it's used in a broad terminology, and that's, that's intentional. You know, Jesus is really, in some ways, talking about all who God is, all that God has done, all that God is going to do, all that it takes to relate to Him, and it's, and it's offered up as the kingdom of heaven for us. But that may be a little hard for us, so we might want to try to put some handles on it so we can at least begin to, to process what the kingdom of heaven is really about. And, and in particular, in this occasion, I, I think it really refers to the kingdom of heaven here is the new thing that God is doing in His activity through the person of Jesus Christ. He's not just a prophet, but He is God become flesh. He is the Messiah. And, and with that, we begin to see that it's referring to Jesus as the Savior and as the Lord. And, and for me, it's most helpful to kind of go back to the beginning of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the idea of the kingdom of heaven, it is the rule of God in our lives by our faith in Jesus Christ. It is... It is the transformation in our identity, our person, our values, our priorities, our perspective, our destiny, all that kind of stuff that comes because we have a personal, life-changing, connecting faith with Jesus Christ. That is the kingdom of heaven that is presented to us. The, the treasure that's buried in the field, the pearl that's presented to us to have for ourselves, it is the gift of of new life that God is giving us in Jesus Christ. A new life that begins now and lasts for all eternity. That comes with the freedom from all of our sins and the liberation to be who God has created us to be in the first place in Jesus Christ. And, 
And that is the gift, the choice that's being presented to us. And this discovery can happen in multiple forms. You look at the first story, and, and this guy is he's just doing life, isn't he? I mean, he, he's, he's out, he's digging in the field because that's what you do. This, this, is, this is his day job, right? You know, Sunday through, Sunday through Friday in their calendar, he, he just works for a living, and he's out digging in the field, getting the field ready for the planting, or he's readying the field for the harvest. He, he's just out working in the field. It's, it's ordinary life. But sometimes the extraordinary gift of God is discovered in the ordinary dynamics of life. You know, and, and I think we need to be alert to that discovery. Sometimes I think it's like, okay, well, I'll tune up and I'll pray a little bit more on Sunday morning. Maybe I'll get something out. But the rest of the week is really kind of just kind of, there, there aren't a lot of God sightings that go on Monday through Saturday. And I think God is there working all the time. And sometimes we discover the most incredible truths about God. We discover the freedom that comes from living in Christ and the gift that God has given us. We discovered it in the everyday moments of life. You know, I remember one time I was at one of our son's baseball games. Both of our kids played baseball. And so we went to, I don't know, thousands of games, it seemed like, before their careers were over, you know, and and I'm standing at one of the, the, my oldest son's games, and, and, and this guy came up, stood next to me, guy that I know, his son had been on the team, they'd been playing together for a number of years. And, you know, this is a guy I chit-chatted with some, I didn't know him real well, chit-chatted with some, I, I did not take this guy to be a spiritual guy in, in any way, shape, or form. He stands up, walks up to me, next to me, and just kind of out of the blue, his first one, he says, Reverend, he says, I need a good word today. It, it was a God moment. Right? It's just a God, but I'm thinking, I'm trying to why did he screw that play up? You know, and, 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 and then it just steps up, Reverend, I need a good word today. Well, give, give me something that I can build my life on. And I got a chance to share the good news with him. Didn't lead to any life transformation, but, but sometimes God just steps into our ordinary lives and creates extraordinary moments for us. And we need to anticipate and be ready and responsive to those things. Sometimes this happens to you at work. Or maybe when you're out for a walk in your neighborhood and a neighbor flags you down and you start talking and this and that, and next thing you know, they're telling you about something that's happened with a parent or, or something with their child. Maybe if you were walking through the McHugh's neighborhood today, some of you know Megan McHugh, one of our kids who's in Kids Connect. This past week at, at horseback riding camp, she fell off of a horse, broke her elbow, had to have surgery, have pins in it, and then they put a cast on and then it, it swelled and there was lots of pain and et cetera, and so you're walking around the neighborhood and Mary happens to be out and you, you stop and she just starts telling you what's going on and, and you just have this wonderful thing to say, you know what, let me, let, let me assure you that I'm going to pray for you. It's an extraordinary divine moment happening in the ordinary. You dig it in the field and the treasure of God is discovered. We need to be alert to that. I also want you to think, see, in this, about... The fact that the discovery of God sometimes comes as a result of an intentional journey. The merchant, what's he doing? He is scouring the marketplaces through his travels, trying to find pearls that he can sell for profit. He's intentional. He's active. It's his mission. It's what his life is about. And i got to tell you, 
You know, sometimes when I stand up here, sometimes when Steve stands up here, sometimes when Ken stands up here, we feel like we're hawking goods at you guys, right? You, know, we're, you need to be reading your Bible on a daily basis. You need to be praying regularly. You need to get involved with a life group. You need to be involved in worship. You need to find a place to serve. We're do, we're sit, we're, we're, and we feel like we're always trying to talk you into doing stuff. But it's all rooted in the fact that we discover God when we're looking for Him. Seek and you shall find. And what we discover is a treasure, a pearl that's worth it all and more. But for me, the most profound thing I think we need to process is this question. What does it really mean to go and sell all that we have and buy the treasure? You notice that? The the first guy, he... In his joy, he goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. When the merchant finds the priceless pearl, he went and sold everything he had and he bought it. What does it really mean to sell everything that we have in order to buy the gift that God gives us in Jesus Christ? I think sometimes we look at this and... and and, and our mindset is drawn much more to the sacrifice that we need to make. This is what I need to give up. This is what I need to give away. This is what I need to eliminate from my life in order to be able to go kind of do what God wants me. We, sometimes this mentality kind of fits into our life. I, you know, I need to sell everything I have and move to the Amazon jungle to serve God. I need to make this huge sacrifice, right? I mean, I went to seminary with a couple of guys who were later on in their years, and that had been their reaction a long time. They felt like God had been calling them, but they just didn't want to go someplace where they didn't want to go, and, and it was like a sacrifice. And, and we Sometimes we have this mindset in our minds that God is asking us to give up all this stuff so somehow we can have Him. And, and, and I really think the issue is not so much more about sacrifice. I think it's about surrender. I, I think it's about just giving ourselves to God completely. It, it's, it's, it's about committing who we are, what we're about, what our priorities are, how we're growing, all, our values, our relationships. It's taking all that stuff and, and surrendering to God for God to work through. It's not so much what we have to give up to give to God somehow or another to, to get Him into our lives, but it's a matter of committing ourselves, surrendering ourselves to Him fully. It's, it's not so much about the compensation we give God, but the commitment that we make to Him I wish Peter had been here to tell his, his story from Crosswalk here in the second service because he said one of the imageries that reemerged to him was, some of you remember Andrew Rogers, he was, one of our, he was our children's minister for a while, and he used an illustration with the kids, and Peter was in that age group at that point in time, where he, he took a, a, a tube and he, and, he, and, he put a whole bu- and he had some rice and he had some tennis balls, right? And he, and he, and he put the rice in, and then he tried to put the tennis balls in and he couldn't get all the tennis balls into the tube. Then he poured everything out and he started over again and he put the tennis balls in first. And then he put all the rice in and he was able to shake it and it all fit. And his point was, if, if you put the right things in first, you put God in first, there's room for all of your stuff. And one of the struggles that Peter had was trying to get God first in his life, and he was trying to work through that, and that's part of how God had called him to go deeper as a result of his experience at camp. That's a lot of what God, God's just saying, put me first. Value the treasure first. Value the pearl first. 
Make sure you do everything that's necessary to have that as a part of your life. Surrender all of it to me, and the rest of the pieces will just fall into place. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. The, the second truth I want you to see is that this passage of Scripture really does call for us to totally abandon ourselves to God. I don't think for a lot of you that's a, that's a new kind of idea. But what I want, do want us to see that it's a sense of abandonment but without any recklessness. Let me, let me process that out for you just a little bit. What do you think, you know, and again, we can push the stories of the parables too far, but what, what, what do you think the friends and the family of this guy who's digging in the field are thinking? He comes in from the end of the day, right? And, and, and he, he says, hey, will you buy this from me? Will you buy that? Will you take this? He's selling everything he's got. And they're thinking, this guy's had heat stroke. He's lost his mind. We need to get authority over him. We should take him to the courts and get, you know, a, you know, a power of attorney over him. You know, he, they're thinking, this guy has lost his mind. This field is not worth what he's doing. But he knows something different, doesn't he? He knows that no matter what he pays for that field, he's got a return on it that, he, that, that, is, <laughs> that is well worth the investment. There's total abandonment, but there's no recklessness because he knows what he's getting. Same with the merchant, with the fine pearl, right? He, he's, he's got a pouch full of pearl. He's selling all of his inventory, but he knows that which he's going to buy is going to draw a price that's well worth it and more. There is no recklessness to it. And, the, and there has to be in our response to the treasure that God gives us that we, we totally abandon ourselves to it. There's a sense it is the priority, the mission, the passion of our lives, but it's not with a sense of risk, but it's with a sense of certainty. There's a lack of recklessness in all of it. I believe Jim Elliott once said, and I don't know if it was original to him, but he said he is no fool who gives up that which he cannot keep in order to gain that which he cannot lose. There's abandonment without recklessness. Ultimately, I think what it really boils down to is that this parable says that all of us, when we encounter the precious gift of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, it calls us to a choice. You've got to make a decision. You're digging in the field. You discover the treasure. What are you going to do? You're searching in the marketplace. You're looking for that pearl that's just the, the pearl among pearls, and you discover it. What are you going to do? That's a choice I can make for myself. It's a choice that you have to make for yourself. But that choice needs to be specific. It needs to be personal. It needs to be sincere. As you discover the treasure that is the gift of new life that comes through faith in Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of our sins, the passing away of the old, the, the new creature being passing away and this new creature made in the image of Christ emerging in our lives, is that the choice that we're going to make? You know, we're going to sing a song about Christ in just a moment and the impact that He's made and the strength to be the, conquer, the conqueror over sin and to give us new life. But really, it confronts us with these two questions. 
And I'm going to conclude with this. First of all, have you made that choice? Has there been a moment in your spiritual journey where you were confronted with the, with the treasure and you said, I surrender. I commit. That's not been your experience. This is something you, that is available to you. This may be the moment where you've discovered the treasure in the field. And in the name of Christ and with the privilege that God gives us, I invite you to buy the treasure, to, to surrender to the gift and make it a part of your journey. Many of us in here can say, been there, done that. Praise the Lord. You know, I had a conversation with somebody in, 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 the, in the lobby after the first service. They said, you know, man, it just brought back memories of the day that I, in, I encountered the forgiveness that comes in God and Jesus Christ and the joy that I had when all that happened. Many of us can point back to a moment or a time in our lives along those journey. The question then to you and to I may be then, is the joy still there? Is the fruit of that decision really growing? Are we still impressed by the treasure and overwhelmed by the pricelessness of the pearl? Let's pray together for just a moment. God, thanks for being in the ordinary moments of our lives. Thanks for being the destination of an intentional journey. And thank you that the gift of the kingdom of heaven, the gift of you and us and us and you through our faith in Jesus Christ is worth all that we can give and brings a joy that lasts for eternity. We say thank you today as we seek your wisdom on how to have this gift in our lives and how to live with that gift on a daily basis. As we pray in the name of the one who gave us that gift, Jesus Christ, amen, amen. I'm going to invite our worship team to come in just a moment and lead us our closing song. We always sing a song at the end for several reasons. One, it's, it's an opportunity for us to worship the Lord through our gifts and you're going to pass the plates. We'd love for you to put your connection cards in there along with any offering you might have. Secondly, we'll also sing the song just as a moment for you to maybe solidify some things that God maybe has been saying to you. And if, you're, if you need to say, you know what, I'm, I'm not going to really sing for a minute. I'm just going to stand prayerfully before the Lord and, and firm up some things. Feel free to do so. Let's stand and stand together and sing to the Lord as we conclude our service. <laughs>